0: Hey, listeners, before we get started, just a quick note. In one of our segments, we do have some strong language uh, that refers to the factual details of one of the cases that was decided by the Supreme Court this week. Now, on to the show.
1: the term a podcast about the supreme court by law 360 i'm natalie rodriguez and joining me is supreme court reporter jimmy hoover hey jimmy how's it going
0: it's going natalie Uh, i gotta say it's been a busy week at the supreme court as i feel like i've been saying that a lot lately just because we're at that stage at the end of the term when the opinions just come fast and furious
1: it's like the justices just like procrastinated and now they're like filing everything like right you know how you, you cram all your assignments at sure. the end of like a, a term? This is like how it feels like. <laughs>
0: right. So to the to the students out there listening, not even the Supreme Court justices are above a little bit of last minute um, assignment writing, but that's okay. Um, so there are eight opinions left as of Thursday morning as we're recording this because as we're recording yes because there was a busy week we had opinions on monday and wednesday and i should also mention that there are more there's another opinion day scheduled for tomorrow so we won't be able to talk about those obviously as we're recording on Thursday, but just to let our listeners know that there's more coming besides what was already decided this week. Now, one thing I should say is we don't know for sure whether Friday will be the last opinion day of the term. There are eight decisions left, as I said, and potentially we could see them kind of call another opinion day for early next week to kind of, you know, get rid of the last remaining ones.
1: Yeah, I have a feeling we're going into next week. I I, I don't think we'll, I don't think they'll cram all eight into tomorrow, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: In any event, we had big news this week. There were um, several high-profile decisions in cases affecting NCAA student-athletes in the First Amendment rights of students around the country. And on that latter score, we actually have a pretty special guest on For today's episode, David Cole, the National Legal Director of the ACLU, who's argued like a bunch of very high profile cases in the court from the Title VII case, Bostock last term to the big masterpiece cake shop case, um, the term before. So that's something we're looking forward to. But we're also going to be talking about some of the other decisions that the the court handed down.
1: Yeah, that was a great convo. But let's start with the big NCAA case. Uh, Jimmy, I know you've been following this one. Want to kind of give the highlights?
0: Sure. I'm just going to kind of keep it high level here. So in NCAA versus Alston, a unanimous Supreme Court, 9-0, struck down NCAA rules banning education-related compensation for student-athletes. So this was billed as kind of the big challenge to amateurism at the collegiate sport level, and the Supreme Court unanimously decided in favor of student-athletes, saying that these NCAA rules prohibiting athletes from this educated-related compensation was, in fact, a violation of antitrust law, agreeing with lower courts that had struck down the rules. Now, I should say that this is a particularly narrow subset of rules here. Um, They specifically apply to things like uh you know benefits like thousands of dollars potentially in academic achievement awards it could be postgraduate scholarships even free tutoring or cash supplies for you know lab equipment or musical instruments this is the kind of, these are the kind of benefits that the NCAA had prohibited under its ban on educated related compensation that the supreme court in a 90 decision now says has to be struck down so a a, a big victory but kind of a marginal victory a, a slow kind of incremental step towards, you know, uh, challenging some of these broader amateurism rules.
1: Any interesting takeaways from that fairly, relatively narrow ruling?
0: Well, I would say the biggest takeaway is that the court was, you know, so agreeable in deciding that um, the NCAA couldn't kind of hide behind the shield of so-called amateurism in college sports to protect itself from the antitrust law. So the court rejected the conference's argument that a 1984 decision by the Supreme Court um, that kind of relied on the, quote, revered tradition of amateurism could be like a blanket protection from the antitrust laws for some of its rules. And it, and it said that, you know, that no longer holds any water in um, this conference. You know, they could make that argument to Congress that it should be shielded from antitrust uh, laws. But, you know, that's not going to hold water at the Supreme Court as they don't have that kind of special significance anymore. Um, the court agreed with the lower courts that this ban was a violation of antitrust law, even though it was a rather narrow decision that, as I said before, applies to kind of a specific subset of rules.
1: All right, so unanimous ruling. Uh, Any additional takes?
0: I would say that Justice Brett Kavanaugh had a pretty scorching hot take um, in this particular case. (laughs) So he writes a concurrence. And, you know, we talked about the arguments in this case. um, You know, Kavanaugh drawing kind of raising red flags about the seeming inequities in how these the the NCAA sports now are worth like so much money and athletes still can't be compensated. So he acknowledges, you know, this is a really narrow decision. But then he takes aim at kind of the whole edifice of amateurism in ncaa sports where you know college athletes are prohibited from profiting off of you know either through salaries or through their likeness or what have you and so i'm just going to read the final paragraph of his concurrence which should be like screaming red alarm blinking uh (laughs) you know warnings to the ncaa and other college conferences about their amateurism system To be sure, he writes, the NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America. Game days in Tuscaloosa and South Bend, the packed gyms and stores in Durham, the women's and men's lacrosse championships on Memorial Day weekend, track and field meets in Eugene, the spring softball and baseball World Series in Oklahoma City and Omaha, the list goes on. But those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising money enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers at a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. I mean, those are like pretty strong words, right?
1: Strong. Yeah, That that's definitely a hot take.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose like you'll see, you know, th- those words kind of fueling more litigation, more challenges to, s- the, to the NCAA's amateurism schemes. Um, but I think it's it's fair to point out that at this point, no one else signed on to his, his concurrence here. So it, it, it remains to be seen whether he gathers any support support at the supreme court uh for you know obviously his views here
1: so definitely one of the big opinions of the week but not the only one uh there was also another major ruling that came down uh wednesday eight to one in what has been deemed the angry cheerleader case Uh, i know jimmy we've talked about this one beforehand
0: That's right. The court handed down a pretty big ruling in favor of student free speech on Wednesday, finding that a Pennsylvania high school district violated the First Amendment when it suspended a student from the cheerleading squad for a profane Snapchat. So for today's episode, we chatted with David Cole. He's the National Legal Director of the ACLU who argued the student's case before the Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. So, David, before we get to yesterday's ruling, can you tell us a little bit about the case and how the ACLU got involved in it? You know, why was this such an important case for student
2: free speech rights? So, um, you know, the ACLU does a lot of student free speech cases. This is kind of our bread and butter. We have affiliates throughout the country. And so when students get uh, suspended or disciplined for uh, saying something that the school doesn't like, they often come to the ACLU. Brandy Levy, uh, on a weekend, uh, sitting at a cocoa hut in a small town in rural Pennsylvania, uh, frustrated that she didn't get uh, picked for the varsity cheerleading team, sent out a Snapchat to her friends uh, saying, uh, fuck cheer, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck everything. Just a plea of, you know, of frustration. Uh, it, that should have been the end of things, but um, the school uh, got wind of it. Uh, and uh, she was suspended from the team for a year. At that point, she turned to the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and they thought, this is a no-brainer of a case. Uh, We'll write a demand letter, and that should be the end of it. Uh, Four years later, uh, we're in the Supreme Court.
0: I think what struck me when the case got to the Supreme Court is kind of how little the court has said you know, about some of these issues about free speech off campus, and particularly with the rise of, you know, social media apps and, and, and the new methods of ways um, that students actually communicate to each other. So I, I suppose you saw in this case kind of a, a real opportunity to clarify the bounds of, you know, school authority to police this type of online speech, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there have been essentially uh, four student speech cases in 50 years they don't they don't jump they don't uh, you know get involved in this all that much the first one was tinker uh 50 years ago and uh several cases since then but all of them involved speech on campus speech clearly within the supervision of the school and um, you know so this case was the first time the supreme court entered into the question of you know, should schools have the same authority to regulate speech off campus that they have on campus? That was the position of the school district. That was the position of the um, of the National Association of School Boards that supported the school district, um, uh, and that position was resoundingly rejected uh, by the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, I think it's a, a very powerful reminder to school administrators. That, you know, things that happen off campus, that's really not your, uh, you know, responsibility and jurisdiction. That's the jurisdiction of the parents, uh, not the school. Um, And, uh, and, you know, and so when when kids say things that you might consider vulgar or rude or unruly or controversial, uh, you know, that's their right. Um, And and so um, uh, I think very, very important uh, decision only the second time the court has ruled in favor of student free speech in its fifty years uh, addressing this matter. So, um, and the first one was Tinker, which the ACLU also handled. So, it's nice to have been involved in you know the uh, bookends of uh, student free speech
0: in- involving a, a a Vietnam protest, right? That right. kind of
2: shows you how long, how long it's Ex- been exactly, exactly. You know, and I think you know the the, the famous line about Tinker is that is that students don't shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. You know, the, the big thing about Tinker was they said, yes, students actually do have some First Amendment rights in school. But at the same time, they said those rights are pretty limited in the sense that, you know, schools need to be able to control what kids say in the classroom, you know, uh, in the hallways, if they're, you know, in assemblies, if they're going to do their job of, of, of teaching. Um, but here you know, the question really was, are are, are students going to kind of have to carry the burden of the schoolhouse on their backs, even when they leave the school uh, and and worry about what the principal thinks about what they say when they send a snap out to their friends? And I think the court, you know, very strongly said, no, if, you know, in in, in the vast majority of cases, student speech off campus uh, ought not be uh, the subject of uh, of regulation, uh, and I think that's the right result. Um, you know they left open the, the the questions of things like harassment, bullying, threats, cheating all things that we conceded uh, can be covered can be regulated by the school uh, outside of school, and nobody really disputed that those things could be uh, regulated outside of school. There are you know obviously hard questions about what the proper um scope of those things is what is bullying you know when does one student being mean to another student constitute bullying that can be regulated by the school that's that's not an you know an easy uh, question to answer but it wasn't a a question that the court could have answered in this case because this case didn't involve any threat of bullying or harassment or any of those things and so you know the court decided what was before it And I think sent a very strong message to the schools to basically, you know, hands off with respect to off-campus speech, except where you're talking about things like severe bullying or threats to the safety of the school or, you know, cheating and things like that.
1: As you said, big decision and a big victory for your client. Um, Could you paint the scene of where you were when you found out and, you know, your initial reactions? And is there anything you kind of wish that the justices did cover Uh, Additionally, that maybe wasn't covered there.
2: So I was, uh, you know, right where I am today. You know, uh, actually in in a uh, in my uh, father-in-law's summer house in Vermont, uh, on Zoom with my team, uh, doing a kind of you know Zoom Scotus watch where we uh, you know jumped on because we thought it might come down, uh, could come down any of any of the last days of the term. Um, and uh, you know you, you, you see it. You, you you go as as quickly as you can to the last line of the syllabus, uh, and uh, uh, and and you see affirmed, and you think <laughs> okay. Uh, so you know Ooh, and, and, relief. <laughs> yeah, and then you you know and then you you, you spend uh, ten minutes uh, trying to speed read the decision so that you can figure out what should your you know press release say, and and you know who's going to respond to who, etc. So much of yesterday was dealt with kind of responding to um, to inquiries uh, about what the case means, uh, you know, um, but but and, and celebrating, uh, you know, celebrating, sadly, uh, you know, virtually, um, right. you know, ordinarily we would have gotten together at the ACLU office for a celebration. But, um, hey, it's it's just uh, it's it's so nice to win one. And this is such a classic ACLU. Free speech case. Uh, it was a huge privilege to be able to work with uh, the team from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, which litigated this case in the district court and the court of appeals, and then were, you know, part of our team at the Supreme Court and um, Schneider Harrison, the law firm in Philadelphia, that uh, worked pro bono on the case all the way through.
0: I suppose nine zero is the best case scenario, but eight one isn't isn't that bad
2: either. It's not bad. And, you know, I mean, Justice Thomas uh, has a very, uh, you know, peculiar and very sort of uh, uh, fundamentalist, originalist approach. And, you know, the, but but, you know, the thing that gives me comfort is uh, when I see nobody joining uh, Justice Thomas on, on, on that approach. Um, uh, you know, eight to one. I mean, you know, to some degree, one of the things I think is is uh, I like best about this case is how much it brought um, all sides together. If you look at the Amicus brief support on our side in this case, it is the most diverse group of Amicus briefs I think I have ever seen in a uh, in a Supreme Court case. We had you know all the conservative organizations from. Uh, you know, Jay Secula was fighting, filing a brief for us, and and the 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 um, Alliance Defending Freedom, the organization that I argued Masterpiece Cake Shop and Bostock against, um, and the Pacific Legal Foundation. You had nine Republican states, led by Louisiana, uh, and then you also had. Uh, the civil uh, rights groups, the National Women's Law Center and Lambda Legal, you had um, the Juvenile Law Center and the Advancement Project. You had, you know, uh, 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 former uh, school board members. Uh, you had uh, school administrators. Just a, you know, across the board. And I think it's because everybody has um, has something to fear from school administrators who impose their views. Uh, on uh, on those with whom they disagree, and you know, school administrators might be conservative, they might be liberal, they might be uh, fundamentalist, uh, they might be uh, you know super progressive. Uh, everybody has an interest in protecting the right of people and young people in particular to speak freely without worry that they're going to be censored because some administrator disagrees with what they say. So you know, in light of that support you know, the fact that we got eight justices is is a little less uh, uh, surprising.
1: Have you spoken to Brandy about the decision?
2: Yeah, she is. Del- she is delighted by the decision. She, co- of course, never dreamed that, uh, you know, sitting at Cocoa Hut on a weekend, uh, uh, sending out a snap like this would would bring her to the Supreme Court. But she's, you know, she feels vindicated and she feels good for the 50 million public uh, school students around the country who can all breathe easier after uh, after this decision.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, David, and and talking us through this pretty important ruling. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.
1: So for our last case of the day, I want to talk about a ruling that came out on Wednesday in, in what's probably not one of the better known cases, but I think is a really big deal. Um, so the case was Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, and it is a big blow to union organizers. Uh, the justices ruled against a California state law that allowed labor unions to organize agricultural workers at their farms. Uh, the 6-3 ruling, I think, is notable because of how the majority of the justices came to this decision, which is that the union's presence, uh, they were allowed to go in the farms for as many as three hours per day, 120 days a year amounted to an unconstitutional taking under the Fifth Amendment. Now, when I hear the words unconstitutional taking, I usually think of, you know, unlawful seizure of land, eminent domain disputes where, like, the state or local authorities or government it's is like a taking. highway or something
0: coming from Exactly, through,
1: yeah. right. Like, we need to build a highway. Sorry, we're going to take this piece of land, compensate you, but you have, like, no say in us. Taking this land Um, And indeed this is a properties rights Case but it's a bit of a novel use For the takings clause that this partial Access to land you know visiting The union organizers Visiting the the farm for uh, You know a few hours A a day rises to the level Of a taking
0: Yeah it didn't you know get as many headlines As perhaps the snapchat case Or even the ncaa case But it's a pretty Blockbuster holding for you know, the world of property law under the Fifth Amendment. I mean, it's, as you say, a pretty big expansion of property rights.
1: Yeah, so the majority, and, and this, this case did break down, I think, on, on fairly, like, ideological lines. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion joined by Justices Clarence Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Um, the all decision, the
0: Republican-appointed justices All on the, the
1: Republican-appointed justices, uh, you know, the they reversed and remanded a ninth circuit decision um and essentially we're saying like look there's a line of president where you know we've we've considered other unique circumstances a uh, plane coming in close to a mm-hmm. land you know uh, on a regular basis uh, uh, Beachcombers having access to a land to walk through, you know, etc. Our physical takings requiring compensation. Um, And so we're, you know, kind of in line with that precedent. These hours that these organizers are coming onto the land as a physical taking. Um, Notably, uh, Justice Breyer wrote it sent, joined by Justice Sotomayor and Kagan, uh, disagreeing (laughs) with that take. (laughs) Uh, they, they, you know, they, they argued this is not a physical appropriation, but rather a regulation of property rights. Um, that, and, yeah. and and they raised a good question of like, just how California might compensate uh, landowners for this kind of taking since it's not, you know, uh, an actual taking like an actual purchase it's a temporary (laughs) grab of the land um so uh, so you know i think there's going to be some issues to work out you know following this ruling um you know justice Breyer, i will say was like look i know our prior precedent on this is muddled that you know what's a permanent versus a temporary taking where do the lines get drawn with the taking but he was like Adopting this new broad rule uh, is not the right approach and, you know, better the devil we know, <laughs> which right. I thought was and he actually used those words better the devil we know than, you know, to go to go down this route. Um, And I thought that was, uh, you know, a pretty pointed take on on his end.
0: Yeah, I would say that kind of going back to the remedy conversation, like, what does this ruling mean? OK, so the Supreme Court holds that you know, this rule giving the union organizers access to growers' property is a taking, but the takings clause says that it's unconstitutional when there's no compensation. So they must be exactly. compensated. So the question really is, and the court didn't answer it, Roberts' opinion doesn't go into it at all, is what to do about the fact that this is an unconstitutional taking. Do you, do now we just require California to, to pay these growers, like for allowing these organizers on their properties? And if so, how much? Or if not, is it that California no longer is able to enforce its rule allowing, you know, for um, union organizers access to these farms? I mean, that's a pretty big big issue there. I mean, is this even going to be a rule going forward or is it just about paying the actual growers themselves? And I think it's also worth mentioning that like this is, you know, it, maybe it's it seems like a small deal in a vacuum about, you know, as you say, three hours a day for, you know, 120 days out of the year or something like that. But this is you know, part of the kind of farm workers union movement in California that was spearheaded by like Cesar Chavez um, that the court has now dealt like a pretty huge blow to. And it's also falls in line with like a pattern of decisions at the court that are steadily and steadily curtailing kind of the, I would say the strength of unions. I mean, we saw in the big Janus ruling that they can't even collect fair share fees from Uh, public sector workers anymore. So I think this is where you're seeing the old familiar ideological lines on the court where the Republican appointees generally vote against the unions and the liberal ones generally vote for the unions. And I think even though we've seen a lot of unanimity and kumbaya feelings on the court with all these other big decisions from Fulton and things like that, the old labor rights disputes are where, you know, old habits die hard. And we're seeing those battle lines continue to be drawn between the, the conservative supermajority of six justices versus the three liberal dissenters. But uh, I think totally that this is one of the biggest cases of the term so far. If, if definitely the week, but, um, I appreciate you walking us through that one, Natalie.
1: Yeah. And so I think that, that covers it for like the big ones this week. Uh, or should I say the this early part of the week? There will right. be more tomorrow, I'm sure. <laughs> and we'll hopefully get into those next week.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
1: We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank special guests, David Cole, and contributing reporters, Zach Zagger and Andrew McIntyre. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.